All right. Well, who's excited for some uh, baptisms in a little bit? Who's excited? Oh, so glad you're here. And um, before we get into it, just want to shout out to uh, friends and family who have come tonight specifically for baptisms. If you know someone who is getting dunked tonight and you're here for support, thank you so much for coming and welcome to the project if we haven't uh, said so already. And also newcomers, uh, if this is your first time here on the project night, this is a unique one. And so make sure you come find us afterwards, ask us any questions that you may have. Um, I'm glad you're here regardless if you call the project home um, or if you're here visiting or supporting some of the people getting baptized tonight because you can kind of get like this outside perspective in on what we're doing. And we are finishing a collection of talks called Life Sucks. Kind of ironic way to start off 2024, but uh, we are finishing off tonight um, this series talking about some things that, hey, like life is hard, life is difficult, where is God in the midst of it? Now, I know that uh, for Gen Z, uh, a lot of you guys in the room, uh, I feel like I'm dating myself a little bit already, but I know Gen Z has a very specific lingo. Uh, Lingo and phrases you guys say that sometimes I need to Google and figure out, what did that person just say to me? Was that a compliment or an insult? Now, I'm not going to embarrass you or myself by going through some of the lingo, but remember, as a millennial, myself, as a millennial, we also had some lingo and some phrases that we used a lot, and I remember we said this a lot back in college, and it's the phrase, the struggle is real. Has anyone heard that phrase before, the struggle is real, or said it in a very ironic way? Yes. So it was nonstop in my college life. That's kind of where it birthed 10 years ago-ish. And the struggle is real. When someone said it, it was kind of like this off-the-cuff statement of, of saying how tough life is, but kind of in an ironic way right? It's like, oh my gosh, I want to go to bed, but this laundry, my washing machine still, the struggle is real. Or like, I want to go read outside, but there's a glare on my iPad. The struggle is real. It's like, oh, like, I can't talk to my crush of the project, so I decided for the same small group just to say hi. The struggle is real. <laughs> Got a Nickelback CD for my birthday. The struggle is real. Just kidding. Jeff loves Nickelback. <laughs> so it's the point of me right now. The struggle is real. And I'm, I'm excited to share on this particular character because I actually wanted to, be, uh, I wanted to speak about him for a while now. But this guy lives a life, and the thematic approach to this book is the struggle is real. And I don't mean that in a very ironic way, but in a way of like, do you ever look at the world or your own life and ever wonder or ask the question, why, why won't God step in? Or why isn't God stepping in? Well, this character named Habakkuk, wondered the exact same thing. And we're going to read about him in just a second. But before we move forward, just a little bit of context here. The life of of Habakkuk, it's going to be very difficult for me to say over the course of this message. Habakkuk, his life was taking place 600 years before Jesus. And he is coming to a point in history in the country of Israel at a pretty volatile time. Now, way before that, we had a very climactic part of Israel's history where a famous king, you may have heard of him, King Solomon, had passed away. And right after his death, the, the, the country went into this massive civil war. They couldn't agree on leadership stuff. They butted heads on political stuff, financial stuff, even God stuff. And so it kind of created this polarizing culture which split the country. And so Israel started off with 12 tribes. Ten tribes remained there in what we call the north still Israel, and then two tribes were at the bottom called Judah. Now, since the death of King Solomon, there has been in Israel, the top half, 19 rulers to when Habakkuk comes on the scene, okay? So more specifically, 18 kings, one queen. Um, They all sucked. 
And, and that's what the Bible is talking. Like they all, the, the disclaimer, they all said and described them to be awful people, wicked, evil, doing uh, uh, bad things in, in the sight of the Lord. Not one good king or queen in that um, span of time. In the southern part, mostly bad rulers, a couple of glimmers of hopes, but not really. But the worst of them all was the one uh, named Manasseh. Manasseh was a king of Judah for a period of time, and he wanted to remove all things God-related. He wanted to remove, burn down everything that related um, people to worship Yahweh, which is what people called and worshiped God, Yahweh. And so he would burn down stuff. He would remove things and just turn the whole country towards paganism. Now, he had a son, and his name is Josiah, and it's recorded that Josiah was the second youngest king in all of Israel, going to the throne at eight years old. Now, later on into his later teens, he um, stumbled upon his servants. One of his servants actually bumped into a piece of scripture that his father Manasseh forgot to burn down. Josiah looked at it and was asked to read it to him. And so his servants read scriptures to King Josiah, and his response was that he was weeping, and he gave his heart to God, and as king, he wanted his whole country to turn back towards God. His son, named Jehoiakim, came into uh, the throne as well, and he did not follow in his father's footsteps, but he followed in his grandfather's footsteps. Manasseh, and even worse, he took the whole thing to a whole nother level. He didn't just turn the country back to paganism, but as a matter of fact, he would go himself, lay hands, and kill himself, prophets and pastors. Usually he would send maybe like an, a soldier or a servant, but he would just do it himself. That's how crazy it is. That's how evil the country is. Just turned towards sexual perversion, child sacrifices. Like it is just messed up and bad. And this is where the story of Habakkuk is. A very polarizing time, a very divided culture. There's apparent no hope in sight, nothing to look forward to in terms of God's people worshiping him. And so here we go into the story of Habakkuk. We're going to read the entire first chapter. So if you didn't get your Bible reading in today, I got you. I got you. It's going to be on the screen right behind me. And this is what the Bible says. It says, this is the message that prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. Look around the nations, and this is God talking now. Look around the nations and look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people, and they will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. What a flex God is putting on these people. Their charioteers charge from far away like eagles, and they swoop down to devour their prey. On they come, all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like the desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone, but they are deeply guilty, for their own strength is their God. This is Habakkuk's now reply to this. O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, who you are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. 
O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, but you are pure and cannot even stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their own nets and burn incense in front of them. They will say, these nets are the gods who have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will you succeed forever in their heartless conquests? And then finally, to end off our reading today, chapter 2, verse 1. I will climb up my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. A lot of reading, but let me break it down for you. The struggle's real. And it's not the struggle of trying to pick an iPhone color or what you're going to get. Habakkuk's situation was real. In his words, he's living in a time of aggression, violence, and greed, and sexual perversion. But what I love about Habakkuk is that he is just purely human here. When you read this dialogue, and of course, it's a little bit of a poetic nature and language, he is, um, if you didn't catch it, very human. He's got this gritty type of honesty to him, which is good and which, what we ought to do. Because Christianity isn't always polished and put together. Christianity, it is messy, it is sucky, and at times causes more confusions and headaches and heartaches rather than hope and joy. I'm just being very real and honest. Life sucks. And Habakkuk is crying out to God, how long, God, will you let this happen? He's pleading for God to move in his own life and in his nation, but it seems like God is silent and not really bothering with his prayers. So regardless of who you are in this room, Maybe you call the project home. Maybe you are just here spiritually curious. Or maybe you're here supporting someone getting baptized tonight, but deep down inside, you actually hate the things of God. I'm glad you're here. Because the question I myself wrestle with is this. How do you reconcile a supposedly all-powerful, all-loving God with the reality and the brutality of our society and culture? Because no matter who you are in this room, whether you are mourning and grieving the loss of a friend or a family member who was taken too soon, whether your heart has been broken from a failed romantic relationship, whether you keep getting backstabbed by friends and gossip, whether your educational and financial ambitions keep falling short, or whether your, your, your family life is in shambles and you don't know what the first step is to live a successful life. This 2,600-year-old contact content is as real and as applicable as it could ever be in your life. You're right there with Habakkuk saying, how long, God, before any of this starts to change or get better? God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, why do you keep letting these things happen? So the question I want to propose to you tonight is, as I'm also asking myself, what will the trials of life do to you? Will you faint at the day of adversity? Or will you hold strong and still to, truce, uh, still to uh, trust God in the midst of trouble? Now, this isn't a message about uh, the problem of good and evil. This is a thought process and, and wondering where is God when you're waiting. And so for, for, for this little short time together, there's two simple takeaways that I want to kind of land tonight. And the first thing is this, is that there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want. It's the first truth you need to understand. There's only one thing worse than not getting what you want, and you probably know what the answer is. Getting what you want. 
Because he's been praying over and over for God to do something. Like, how long do I got to pray, Lord, for you to do something? Like, we got janky leaders, janky kings. Everyone's corrupt. Everyone's getting killed. Um, God, when are you going to do something about this? What did he want? For God to come and do something in his country. It says in verse 5 how God responds, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will do something so crazy you yourself wouldn't even believe it. I love this. I love God's response here because it's just so gangster. He tells him to be amazed in advance. And that's what God is calling us to live in. That's called faith, to live actively amazed in advance for something you believe God's doing that you haven't seen any evidence of actually happening yet. Because anybody can be amazed when something big goes off, right? Like anybody can start dancing when the music comes on. Faith is when you start dancing when no one else hears the music. Faith is praying when no one else is praying. Faith is worshiping when no one else is worshiping. That's the life God has called us to live. But Habakkuk here, he gets his foot stuck in his mouth. I love it. I don't love it, but I kind of love it. How? God do something to the nation of Judah and Israel. He's like tattletailing on this whole country. God's like, okay, I will raise up another army called the Babylonians from Babylon, which would be the greatest empire and army at the time, and they're going to come and just kill everyone and take the rest captive. Wait, 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 what? This is not what I was expecting. I just wanted a good king, not for my whole country to be taken captive. Uh-oh. Habakkuk's got a new problem. What was the old problem? God, do something. What's the new problem? <laughs> God, you're doing something, and I don't like it. Oscar Wilde was right when he said it. There are only two sources of unhappiness in life, not getting what you wanted, and the others when you get it. Here's the thing what I wrote down. The truth is, so we don't know what's best for us. I'll tell you what, I'm so thankful that God knows when to say no to the prayers that I have prayed sometimes. I have prayed things in my past, letting God know what to do. And I look back in hindsight and think to myself, hmm, I'm really glad God didn't answer that one prayer. I've learned in my life, in my short, humble life, that it is best to let God handle punctuation. I'm not good at punctuation, (laughs) theologically and actually. But when we make this dogmatic decision to put a punctuation down, how do you know that God didn't intend a comma there or a semicolon, whatever that does? <laughs> so, often we get, so often we get delivered a phrase. We have a subject and a verb, and we think, this is it. I hate this. But yet, we didn't know if he was going to take it somewhere else with just one more clause, which is a few more words, which is a little bit more time, Here we are, getting so hasty to put punctuation marks down where we were never told to. And also I've learned in my short, humble life is that it's over when God says it's over. And no sooner, because God gets the last word. He has the keys to, to doors that he can open and no one can shut. And whatever he shuts, no one can open. Here's what I need you to, to, to get, is that you don't need to understand what God is doing in order to trust him. Does that make sense? Because just because he's not talking back to you about the problem does not mean he's not working on the answer. There's only one thing worse than not getting what you want. But even though he's having a hard time with all of this, there's a great thing that he's doing, and that Habakkuk's struggling it out with God. 
Like he's being very honest about everything straight to his face. It's bold, it's brash, but certainly it is to God's face. This is what it says in verse um, 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. Like he's bringing what's bothering him to God. The doubts, which is not a bad thing, my friends. The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's unbelief. Doubt is inevitable as we're in process of believing. So when you're hurting and when you're doubting, the last truth is this. Fall back on what you know and rise up above it all. You see, the thing about tragedy and when life kind of goes off the rails is that you have a choice. You have a choice to, to let everything you believe be stolen away from you or choose to hold on to what you know about God and understand that even though hard things in life are inevitable, your thoughts are not God's thoughts and your ways are not God's ways. He is not just a God or some God. In Habakkuk's language, he's my God. My rock. How can you let this happen to me, my God? Like, if you put his words into a picture, he's kind of just like wrestling with him. He's not pushing him or distancing himself away, but he's holding on to God. Like, I'm hurting, and I'm in pain, and I'm confused, and I'm mad, but you're still my rock. You're still my God. You see the tension there? He's expressing what's killing him, but he's falling back on what he knows. That's what he's doing, and that's what we need to do, to doubt your doubts and to put belief back in your beliefs. See, that's a tough thing when a lot of people put their entire lives in God because in moments of difficulty or when things don't go their way, they're quick to release the things they do know and grab onto things they don't know. As for me, in my life, I don't want to live like that. I would never want to trade my belief in God for a new set of doubts because what's, what's that going to do for you anyways? It's so easy for you and I to point the finger at God and claim that he, if he's all-powerful and all-loving, then why the heck would all this bad stuff happen? If I was God, I wouldn't let this happen on my watch. But the truth is, I don't know. I really don't. I wish I could give you a formula sheet of why bad things happen and why things are not working out in your life. But trust me, that will be a question I will for sure ask God when I get to heaven. I don't know most things. But what I do know is that God loves me. And I'll get the band to come back up. He doesn't want me to walk this life alone. He sent his own son to die for me. I have everlasting life when I pass away. And even though I may be hurting right now, I know one day God will show me the answer of why he bottled up all my tears. So that's what I know. So I'm not going to let go of any of those things just so I can grab a hold of this new set of random doubts which is going to serve me no purpose anyways. So as you fall back on what you know, you got to now rise up above it all. you got to climb that mountain. you got to still choose to trust God and put your faith in him. And that's what the start of chapter 2 says. It says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. I love that because he's not speaking anymore. He said his piece. Now he's listening. Before he was worried, and now he's waiting. He's waiting on God. 
because he has made an intentional decision to wrestle all this out, not by himself, but choosing to do it with God. It kind of reminds me, kind of reminds me about this past week learning about Lego. I know kind of random, but I have a reason why I want to share this with you guys, Lego. In the name of studying, of course. The most profitable company, toy company in the world. I think we can all agree that. Valued at just over $11 billion. 1960, um, there was a fire in a factory in Denmark. A factory for a toy company called Lego. At this point, this, co- this company pretty much just sold and made wood toys. That was the original um, purpose of this company. Made, they made wooden toys. But at the factory fire obviously burnt everything down. <laughs> if you're the business owner fronting up the money for that, oh, almost dropped it. Well, the person just putting the money towards that, probably disaster, probably sucky, lost all their money. The whole thing burnt down. Except for this other little piece of the factory, which actually was holding the beta division of plastic bricks. It was just preliminary. It was just an idea. It was just an experiment. Back then, they called them um, automatic binding bricks. So Lego today, you see they have the tubes where you can make kind of like different things happen. They didn't have the tubes. They just kind of stacked on top of each other. And they were working with it and and then all of a sudden they had the idea let's put tubes on them to give kids and children creativity and adults, let's be real here um, creativity to do whatever they want and ever since they put the tubes on um, spread like wildfire I know you're probably not thinking about this but I'll tell you anyways how many combinations can, can you stack two bricks in Lego? 24 two bricks what was right three bricks Sorry, four bricks, over a thousand. Six bricks, 915 million combinations. 915 million. And here lies the success to Lego. Because they're just spreading endless creativity. They're selling creativity to children and adults all over the world. Literally endless. So let's recap. How did they get to be one of the most largest and most successful toy companies and businesses in the world? How did they get to be valued at over $11 billion? A whole factory burned to the ground. And then they realized the power of just a bunch of little plastic bricks sticking together. And I just honestly, with all my heart, I just felt in my heart to tell you tonight that the things that you've been handed in life, maybe a fire, maybe getting fired, maybe getting diagnosed, or the relationship ending, or maybe going to that funeral you never thought to go to so fast. And you don't understand why you've been handed these things, but God doesn't want you to focus on what you don't have, but he wants you to focus on what you do have. If we can get our minds off for just a second on the material possessions, the boyfriend or girlfriend, the status or reputation, or whatever your wooden factory may be, and be reminded of what Jesus has promised. And what has he promised? He has promised me that he will never leave me or forsake me. He has promised me that I am more and truly more than a conqueror. He has promised me that when I'm weak, I'm strong. He's promised me that when I'm in the middle of the valley, I'm comforted and protected. He's reminded me that even though I'm hurting, my my pain is temporary, and there'll be no more when I go to heaven with him. 
When I have Jesus, I have everything I need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So friends, fall back on what you know and rise above it all. The world is a beautiful and dark place at the same time, but you have a God that will come on your behalf even if you have to see it in hindsight. He is for you, he loves you, he's championing you, and he will never let you go. Let's stand with me. I'm gonna pray for you and we'll sing together. Thank you, Jesus, for our time together. And as we worship, God, we put our eyes on you. Life sucks sometimes, but we put our faith and our trust in you no matter what. God, as we worship in, in, in response to worship, I, I, I pray, God, that we would engage, that we would um, tune ourselves in, that we would have tunnel vision and focus and, and, and our, our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our spirits towards you. God, throughout the good and throughout the bad, you are still faithful. You are still good. You are still sovereign. You are still holy. You are still powerful. And you are still loving. And we are your children. And so, God, I'm so sorry for the crappy things our friends are going through right now in life. But we know, and we know that you never promised us an easy life, but you did promise us a life not doing it alone. So in the times where we feel alone, remind us that you're holding our hand every step of the way. Remind us that you go before us. Remind us that you have set the pathway and have already kind of dented in the footsteps in in the sand. And all we have to do is just follow in your order and choreography. So God, I pray for those in this room right now that have a weight, a burden, this heavy thing that's killing them right now. now. And they're standing here, sitting in church or watching online and thinking, I cannot do this. I cannot do this in my life. But God, I pray you would come for them right here, right now. I pray you remind them that you got this. And even though it is crappy and sucky right now, you are God of miracles. So God, I just pray that you reveal yourself in such a beautiful and unique way. And we give you our worship and our praise and prayer in response to that. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. As we sing in worship, we're going to have a prayer team coming down. And if you have anything in your life that you want prayer for, we got this amazing young adults who are going to be right here at the front. You can make your way now. And if you want to pray with them, we're just going to sing one song again to baptisms. So take advantage of it. But we got some crazy, amazing stories to hear. God bless you. Let's worship together. <laughs>